engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. Hello there. It's Eric Erickson. It is nine after the hour. Stand by for news, as Paul Harvey would say. Listen, out of the gate. I want to tell you guys about something. Today is Giving Tuesday, and every dollar you give to the Atlanta Community Food Bank provides four meals for hungry kids, hardworking families, struggling seniors. If you help the Atlanta Community Food Bank on Giving Tuesday or anytime during the holiday season, you can go to gagives.org or Google Georgia Gives. But more importantly, if you give a gift today of $35, that $35 is going to become $70. Thanks to a generous gift from Medlitics, who is matching all gifts until midnight tonight. Now, I'm going to give you a different number from what I normally would give you here at the beginning of the program. It's 678-365-4100. That's 678-365-4100 if you want to give or go to gagives.org. Again, if you give $35, it's going to be 70 because there's a matching gift until midnight tonight for the Atlanta Community Food Bank. Good stuff, folks. Now, we have breaking news to deal with right out of the gate here. A federal court in Washington has just rejected the temporary restraining order from the Consumer Financial Protection Board filed by Laura English. Uh, English was intending to be the acting director of the Consumer Financial Protection Board, the CFPB. Richard Cordray had named her the acting director. He, she was his chief of staff as he left the building reading into a federal law that he was allowed to do this. Well, the Justice Department came out and said he didn't have the power to do it. The president could override him with the um, with the federal appointments power. And we now know from this afternoon that the CFPB's general counsel and senior staff all told Richard Cordray he was exceeding his powers to allow Miss English to become the acting director. Nevertheless, he did it, and she hired private counsel to go to court and issue a temporary restraining order uh, denying Mick Mulvaney access to the office or any powers to be in charge. She had to use a private lawyer to do it because the general counsel of the CFPB refused to go along with it. Well, a federal court in Washington, D.C., in the last 20 minutes has rejected her request for a temporary restraining order, giving Donald Trump a huge legal victory in federal court. Interestingly enough, the judge who did it is a Trump appointee. He was confirmed to the bench back in September, saying that the president under the federal appointment powers uh, is allowed to do this. He also is citing a federal case from the District of Columbia Court of Appeals that really casts constitutional questions about the structure of the CFPB. See, the way the Consumer Financial Protection Board was structured is it's not beholden to Congress for its budget. It gets to add on fees to the Federal Reserve System to fund it. And then while the president names the director, supposedly they're then firewalled off from Congress and the president. No politician can oversee them. In fact, members of Congress from both parties have been complaining that the CFPB has no systematic fundamental oversight component under the Constitution and the federal uh, appellate court in Washington that you will recall uh, was stacked by Barack Obama when the Democrats got rid of the filibuster. Even the liberals on that court have said the CFPB structure is constitutionally dubious. So a federal judge has just handed Donald Trump a huge victory saying Mick Mulvaney will remain the acting director of the CFPB whether or not um, Richard Cordray likes it. This is a huge win for the president. 
and puts in doubt whether or not Miss English will be able to keep her job. Mick Mulvaney suggested yesterday if she didn't show up for work today, she may be fired. And now a judge is saying he is in charge. Awesome. Okay, I want to tell you again, gagives.org. That's where you can go to help the Atlanta Community Food Bank provide meals for kids, families, and seniors. Now, here's something else I want to remind you of. You have the opportunity on Thursday and Friday to go help Clark's Christmas kids uh, provide toys for foster kids. Um, And that is a, a great and worthy cause. All of these are good causes. WSB wants to be able to provide you as many good opportunities to good causes this year to be able to donate your money to good causes uh, to help others. Uh, That's what this season is about, helping other people, Uh, remembering the birth of Christ who helped us, and so you can help other people. So you got all these good things going on. We will keep you posted. Let's move into the tax reform fight here. Phone lines are open as well, 404-872-0750-1800-WSB-TALK. The president has had a, a meeting with Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer where they did not show up. He invited them. But in a tweet, the president said he wasn't expecting a deal because the Democrats were all talking no action. Now, as a result, the Democrats decided not to go to the White House. Or, or yeah, they, they decided not to participate in the media. The president went to the White House, to Capitol Hill. Then there was a meeting to the White House. Um, the Democrats decided they weren't going to go because of the president's tweet. It appears, though that the tax bill is going to the floor of the Senate. Now, I need to pause here for a moment, and I need to explain something to you that you're hearing in the media that really isn't true. NBC News, in particular, is pushing the story that the Congressional Budget Office says there's going to be a huge tax increase on the poorest families in America due to the tax plan. First of all, remember that the Congressional Budget Office gets everything wrong. They overestimated everything with Obamacare. They constantly get things wrong. No one should believe any estimate from the Congressional Budget Office. And frankly, the office probably should be shut down given how badly it does. The nonpartisan Independent Tax Foundation has come out with an analysis showing that everyone's going to benefit from the Senate plan, particularly the lowest income people. So why does the CBO and NBC News and liberal organizations say there's going to be a huge tax increase? Because under Obamacare, Democrats listed the subsidy for insurance as a tax payment to individuals. So even though it has nothing to do, remember the Supreme Court held that Obamacare is a tax. And so the Democrats then said that the government subsidizing your health insurance and the individual mandate were tax issues. So what the Congressional Budget Office is doing is saying that under the Republican tax plan, the individual mandate is going to go away. Under the Republican tax plan, they're getting rid of the individual mandate that forces you to buy health insurance. When you are forced as a poor person to buy health insurance, the government subsidizes your health insurance. Because they're getting rid of the individual mandate, the government will no longer subsidize the individual mandate. It's no longer there, so why subsidize something that's not there? So the Congressional Budget Office is saying 
that that is a tax increase. Because the individual mandate is going away, and so with it, the subsidy for the individual mandate is going away, you have a tax increase, according to the CBO and the Democrats. It's not a tax increase. No one's tax rates are going up. No one's The amount of money that anyone pays to the federal government is not going up. What's happening is the government's getting rid of the individual mandate. This shows you how disingenuous Obamacare is. It is full of accounting tricks and gimmicks to make you think you're getting something better than you actually are. And now the same people who did this are the people who are telling you you're going to get a tax increase if you're poor because you're no longer going to be forced against your will to buy the health insurance you don't want. Ponder that for a minute. That That's what they're doing. This is Orwellian. For all the Democrat claims about Barack Obama being Orwellian, this is Orwellian. This is a revision of language to make you think you're getting something that you've never gotten to begin with and you're not going to get in the future. It's nonsensical garbage like this is the reason people do not trust politicians in Washington. after the hour. Now, I want to move on to other news out there. The North Korean missile. It is an ICBM. It went into space. It flew over Japan. It fell into the sea. The president this evening saying he's going to take care of it. I don't know what that means, but he says they're going to take care of it. Um, so here's the thing. He needs to take care of it. Because we need to shut down North Korea. The North Koreans have been emboldened in the last year. You know, here's the thing. Let me put it to you this way. You know how the left is saying that all of these dictators abroad are being emboldened by President President Trump? That, uh, for example, um, in, in Libya, the Libyans are dismissing a CNN report on slavery in Libya saying that it's coming from CNN International and, oh, by the way, the president thinks CNN International is fake news, therefore you shouldn't believe it. And you got members of the media saying, see, 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 listen, look, look, what, look at the president, look what he's doing. If the president's dismissing the American media abroad, dictators are going to do it. Now, first of all, dictators have been doing this forever. But if the president of the United States can embolden dictators abroad, why can't the political left? Because you got to have North Korea right now. He's looking at all these American Democrats who are praising North Korea, saying that Donald Trump is a monster and North Korea is civilized, and he's really emboldened. I mean, it's a two-way street, folks. If the left believes that Donald Trump can embolden these dictators, well, the left can embolden them too. La resistance can embolden dictators who hate Donald Trump. See, they're fixated on people like Putin saying, oh, well, Donald Trump and Putin, they're in cahoots. So Donald Trump is emboldening Putin. What about Iran? You know, there's a story today, I forget what media outlet, I didn't even put it in my stack of stuff to look at, but essentially throwing um, Saudi Arabia and Donald Trump under the bus, praising Iran because Barack Obama's legacy is at stake. The same's happening with North Korea, though. 
you have all these people on the left piling on top of Donald Trump, attacking him for his handling of North Korea, say North Korea is a better place to live than here. They are saying this, by the way. Democrats are saying this. So why on earth can't the left embolden people if Donald Trump can? Is it just words? Now, when we come back, we got to get to Roy Moore. There is polling out in Alabama, and Roy Moore is ahead in the polls in Alabama. He is. You may not have thought that due to the pile on. I'll tell you what I know when we come back. The phone number, 404-872-0750, 1-800-WSB-TALK. Them's the numbers. You can also get me on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, wherever, at EW Erickson. And get the podcast and show notes by texting SHOW to 444-999. Roy Moore is ahead in Alabama, according to the Emerson College polling. Now, you know, I, I didn't let me, while we're here, I'll do this in real time, go to Real Clear Politics. And I will find the polling average, the polling average in Alabama. Okay, here we've got uh, Emerson College has Roy Moore up six. Now, in the polling average right now, the Real Clear Politics average, we have Roy Moore up one. Uh, Gravis, which conducted a poll over the 14th and 15th, has Jones up five. Uh, WBRC TV over there has more up too, and this was a 3,000 likely voters conducted over one day, which typically is a sign of a BS poll. Emerson College has conducted its polling over the 25th, 26th, 27th. It's 500 likely voters over a three-day period, showing Roy Moore up six. What's significant about this poll is that Roy Moore had been up 11 in the last Emerson poll. Now, whether or not more is sustainable. And by the way, you should note that there's been a dramatic shift in that Roy Moore fell behind pretty significantly, um, Doug Jones, the Democrat, and has now bounced back in the polling average and would give him a slight lead. Uh, and really, the, the, the poll that skews everything is the Fox News poll, and it had uh, Jones up eight. But pretty much all the other poll, Emerson had him up 10. He's now up six. Uh, Fox 10 had him up six. Uh, and then you had Fox News had Jones up eight. A Gravis poll had Jones up five. And now more back into the lead. And he's got time to fully recover and solidify himself in that race. As Democrats continue to make fools of themselves in Washington, D.C. over sexual harassment and sexual assault. And I think the media, in fact, I've seen a number of D.C. inside the Beltway types dismissing the idea that the Democrats' hot takes on John Conyers and Al Franken are helping Roy Moore. I beg to differ. Because I Democrats went under their way to demand Republicans hold Roy Moore to a very tough standard that they're not holding Al Franken and John Conyers to. And there are a lot of voters out there who are going to look at this and say, wait, 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 wait a second, wait a second. Why do you want us to hold our guy to a standard you're not going to hold your guy to? to heck with that. We're sending him to the Senate. And that's fair. But listen, it, it, there was a piece today in The Federalist, and I love The Federalist. Uh, I would not be doing what I'm doing but for Ben Dominich, um, all out, outstanding guy. Uh, just got married to Megan McCain. Congratulations to them. Sean Davis is a dear friend. 
over there, uh, Molly Hemingway and the, the like. I really love them, and I so I I rarely ever want to engage negatively with a piece that appears at the Federalist. But there's a DC McAllister piece over there today that I just I, I've got to vehemently disagree with. Um, essentially making the Christian case for supporting Roy Moore if you believe all of the allegations. If you think Roy Moore is, is the scum of the earth for what he's done, uh, go vote for him, basically, now, including distorting the story of Esther to say that, that Haman was put to death for being falsely accused of raping Esther and she said nothing, which is a gross distortion of that big old tale. Listen, I, let me be really clear with all of you here. If you believe Roy Moore, if you do not believe his accusers, go vote for him. If you believe Roy Moore's accusers, though, you do not have to go vote for Doug Jones. You can sit it out. This is not a binary. I've got to choose Jones or Moore. No, you don't have to go vote for either. If you believe the accusers, if you think they're credible, I happen to think they're credible. You don't have to go vote for anybody. If you don't think they're credible... If you think that they're lying, if you think it's a partisan hit job, though, go vote for Roy Moore. Do it with a clear conscience. Uh, but I don't see anyone need that anyone needs to go vote for Doug Jones. I, I don't see that any Republican, even those who really disagree with Roy Moore, who, who believe his accusers, I don't know why you need to go vote for a man who believes in abortion rights, wants to take your guns away, and wants to put men in women's bathrooms. I, I don't understand why anyone would justify doing that because you don't like Roy Moore. Just just don't vote for either one. There is that option. I don't know how Alabama's going to turn up, but I do think that none of us should be surprised if Roy Moore gets to the Senate. Now, there are downsides for Republicans if Roy Moore wins. Yes, they'll get another vote in the Senate, but Moore will also be someone the Democrats use to tar and feather Republicans. However, that is largely mitigated and neutralized by the fact that the Democrats have Al Franken and John Conyers and the like. They really can't attack Republicans for Roy Moore. When so many of the Republicans campaigned against Roy Moore, and the Democrats are standing shoulder to shoulder with Al Franken and with John Conyers and Al What's-His-Name and the like in the House. That kind of mitigates it. What I do hope, though, is that if Roy Moore does get elected, that he doesn't stand in front of the camera. Because the Democrats want Roy Moore in front of the camera. They want to make Roy Moore the poster child for everything that's wrong with the Republicans. So he should resist giving them the opportunity. Keep his head down and just work hard in the Senate. Keep his head down. Prove to members of the Senate he's not the monster they think he is and work hard. Now, I don't know whether he's going to get there or not, but the fact that the real clear politics average has bounced back in his favor, I think you got to take the polling average seriously. He very well could pull this off. Um, the registration deadline for this runoff has closed in Alabama. It doesn't appear that there was an upswing in Democratic registration in Alabama. He, Roy Moore could be the next senator from Alabama. And if he is, the voters will have decided. And if he is, the voters will have served as a jury of his peers. And so if the voters decide that Roy Moore deserves to go to the Senate, the Senate should let him serve. The Senate should not expel Roy Moore after voters send him there. They should not give their middle finger to the voters because the voters are giving the middle finger to Washington. They need to listen to the voters. It 
is 55 after the hour. The phone number of 404-872-0750-1800. WSB Talk. Gun reciprocity. The House of Representatives is going to mark up the National Concealed Carry Reciprocity legislation this week. Uh, I know this is an issue many of you care about. We will be doing an action alert uh, at the resurgent. Um, If you want to sign up to get that when we release it, text the word SHOW to 444-999 so you can participate in this calling members of Congress to get them to support national concealed carry reciprocity. I think we need to do that. Uh, We need national concealed carry reciprocity. I think it's good legislation, and I'm delighted to see it moving forward in the House of Representatives. Um, so go on and, and just, if you go to the resurgent.com, we'll have the information up there when this comes forward, it is being marked up in committee in the house. It looks like there may be support. Steve Scalise, interestingly enough, uh, has come out for national concealed carry reciprocity. And of course the media is not touching the story because the media can't touch the story since Steve Scalise was shot. They can only touch the story if Steve Scalise opposes it, and then they can highlight uh, the terrible thing that happened to him by a left-wing wackadoo. But since he supports it, well, this just confounds their narrative. Uh, But it's good legislation. Essentially what it says is that if you get concealed carry permission in your state and you go to another state, you shouldn't have to worry about whether or not that state recognizes it. They will, by default, recognize your concealed carry. It is commonsensical legislation. Uh, We should not, if we want to travel with a concealed carry gun on the interstate, traveling from one state to another, have to worry about if we're in the middle of a third state that doesn't recognize our concealed carry permit, we can get arrested. That's nonsense. Uh, They're doing this under the the Commerce Clause power, which is one of the few times I would ever agree with them doing something like this. Now, when we come back, we got to shift gears. Republican family values. The Democrats are attacking Republicans for their family values, claiming that, well, they've got the data all screwed up. And I'll tell you when we come back. is nine after the hour. I am Eric Erickson. This is WSB. The phone number 404-872-0750. 1-800-WSB-TALK. Glad to have you with me this evening. Remember, folks, there are all sorts of good causes that you can help with. And today we are recommending the Atlanta Community Food Bank. Every dollar you give helps feed children, families, senior citizens, This is Giving Tuesday, and if you want to give, go to gagives.org. More importantly, though, if you make a gift today of $35, that $35 is going to become $70 thanks to a generous gift from Medlitix, who's matching all gifts until midnight tonight. You can call 678-365-4100 for more details. I want to go back to the phones, which I normally don't do starting monologue, uh, but I'm headed to a topic, and I think this is directly relevant to it on pivoting for Roy Moore. Marty and Villarica, welcome to the program. Yeah, good day, good evening, I guess. <laughs> uh I was you know, the I was talking to the screener about the biblically based reason we can vote for Roy Moore is forgiveness. I mean he in thirty five, forty years there has been no hint of scandal. 
that indicates a change in somebody's life to me somewhere. And he claims Christianity. Now, I don't know his heart, but I do know that his fruits in the last 40 years have been pretty good. So by their fruits, you will know them. Yeah. And, and, and you know, this is probably, Marty, the the, the better argument for people um, who want to support more is forgiveness. But what I would say, though, is that someone's got to repent to be forgiven. Um, and he's, he's doubled down on he hasn't done anything wrong. And uh, to forgive implies something wrong, and he says he hasn't done anything wrong. Now, as I've said before, if you just flat out don't believe the accusers, if you think it's a partisan hit job— well, then go vote for more. If you do, though, if you do think there is real credibility in their accusations and Moore has doubled down and said he didn't do it, even though you believe the accusers, well, then I don't think you can go vote for him based on forgiveness because he hasn't repented. Um, all of this, though, and the reason I wanted to let Marty jump, jump on in here instead of waiting, making him wait forever until I can get back to phone calls is because there's a story out today or over the weekend, rather, that uh, from Nick Kristoff at the New York Times, that conservatives thunder about family values, but they don't really practice them. Liberals who practice the value, liberals are the ones who practice the values conservatives preach. And citing Roy Moore and and Newt Gingrich and Donald Trump and Joe Barton and everything else, they have failed to live up to these values. And Moore is going to be the guy that Democrats use from here on out against Republicans saying this is a guy who preaches family values in Christianity, and yet uh, he refuses to acknowledge what he did to a 14-year-old um, back in the late 70s. He denies it whatnot, and she's credible. Now, y- you do have to feel some level of sympathy for people who are accused of things from 40 years ago. How, where do they go to get their name back? The problem is, as I've said repeatedly on the show, I think Moore completely botched his defense. He could have come out and aggressively defended himself. And gotten his wife out there on the campaign trail as well. And, and they they didn't do what I think they should have done out of the gate to stop this story from moving forward. And now he's going to be the guy that the Democrats use as um, Republicans or hypocrites on family values. But are they? What does the data actually show? There's actually some new data out there that you will find handy. Uh, because I I guarantee you that you're going to encounter people who call Republicans hypocrites and say things like red states have higher divorce rates and higher teen pregnancy rates and stuff. So how do you respond? So Nick Kristoff and a lot of other liberals are relying on a book uh, by two ladies, uh, Naomi Khan and June Carborn, called Red Families versus Blue Families. Let me read to you. Um, this is from Bradford Wilcox at Politico Today. And he says these two ladies, they make the case that blue states have more successful and stable families than red states. Arkansas, for example, is one of the highest divorce rates in the nation, whereas Massachusetts is one of the lowest. Con and Carbon go on to contend blue families more than red families encourage their children to simultaneously combine public tolerance with private discipline. Their children then overwhelmingly choose to raise their own children within two-parent families. In other words, blue families are more successful at forging exactly the sort of stable two-parent families red Americans claim they support. This is a problem, though, when you get down into the data. And I am seeing journalists, reporters, you should see the air quotes I'm making in my office, uh, citing this all over, citing this data that, well, red states have more family instability than democratic states, uh, blah, 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 blah. But there's a problem. Because 
red states can be skewed towards urban areas like Atlanta or Savannah or let's take a state like Florida, uh, Texas. Look at Austin or Dallas or Houston. Well, then it turns out that if you go down to the county level, what you find is that teens in red counties are more likely to be living with their biological parents compared to children living in bluer counties. At the community level, the story about marriage and family instability looks a lot different. At the county level, the argument that red America is doing worse than blue America isn't true. See, the, the large urban centers in red states skew the data. What the data actually shows is that Republicans are more likely to be married and happily married than independents or Democrats. In fact, Republicans are less likely to cheat on their spouses. They're less likely to be divorced than independents and Democrats. Donald Trump is the exception, not the rule. Family patterns for parents are particularly noteworthy since children are more likely to thrive when they're raised by stable married families. If you look at parents aged 50 to 55 in the U.S., Republican parents are significantly more likely to be in their first marriage and have married to say they're very happy in their marriage. Not only that, 61% of Republican parents are in their first marriage compared to 50% of Democrats and 46% of independents. Republican married parents are six points more likely to say they're happy with their marriage than Democrats or independents. More specifically, Republicans are less likely to have their first child outside of marriage compared to Democrats or independents. So contrary to what all these liberals are saying, Republicans are actually more likely to enjoy a happy, stable family life. In fact, according to the data, the American Family Survey from 2017, most specifically, Republicans are less likely to have children out of wedlock, less likely to be divorced, less likely to be miserable in marriage, less likely to want a divorce, less likely to cheat. Republican parents are at least nine percentage points more likely to be in their first marriage. And by the way, Republicans are more likely to be raising children in stable two-parent heterosexual nuclear households, which is the most stable way to raise a child. So it's a great talking point for the left to say, oh, look, we've got this research from, from researchers saying that Republicans are terrible, hypocritical parents who have abortions and get divorced and have children out of wedlock. And that's not true at all. Now, there are some of you saying something out there, muttering to yourselves, something that is true and that we're not supposed to talk about and that gets us in trouble when we talk about it. And that is one of the reasons that the data is so screwed up and makes Republican areas look really bad when it comes to families and out-of-wedlock kids when you take it at a state-by-state -state level is because in the inner city, among minority families, it is increasingly likely to have broken families and children born out of wedlock and divorces. And that skews a lot of the red state, blue state talking points away from red states because many of the red states are southern states where there are large minority populations in urban areas. And those homes have broken apart and are collapsing and no one's focusing on rebuilding them. And that affects the data. And so many of the conversations that have to be had are basically among white families. And a, a white Republican family is more likely to be in their first marriage happily married and stable with kids than a white Democratic family. And the problem with it being difficult to talk about is because, like Denzel Washington noted uh, in what I talked about yesterday, uh, children from broken homes in the black community without a father at home tend to be more likely to engage in crime. 
And you're not allowed to talk about the collapse of fathers and family in the black community if you're a white guy because people scream racism at you. But nobody wants to talk about it and no one wants to deal with the problem. And it is a real problem. It is a problem across ethnicities. It is a problem across the economic spectrum. But it is so loaded these days uh, with so many people wanting to make uh, race a part of the argument as opposed to just stable families across race and ethnic lines that people don't like to talk about it. And it's such a problem. We need to talk about the collapse of the family in this country. But the left would prefer to just make partisan points about all of it. It's 26 after the hour, and I continue to be amazed that we are still talking about Donald Trump's Pocahontas remark yesterday. Liberals are more outraged that Donald Trump referred to Elizabeth Warren as Pocahontas than they are that Elizabeth Warren made up that she was a Cherokee Indian. You know, she got hired at Harvard by claiming to be a minority, not a female, but an American Indian. She did. She even participated in a cookbook of Indian recipes, and she plagiarized the recipe of a French chef. To get in. David uh, French at National Review has just a brilliant, brilliant takedown of Elizabeth Warren and her fraud that she's perpetrated. Uh, Warren, who was posing as a trailblazing Cherokee, contributed recipes to a recipe book with the name Pow Wow Chow. She plagiarized some of the recipes. Her version of Pow Wow Chow came directly from a famous French chef. She once claimed to be the first nursing mother to take the New Jersey bar exam, making her the Jackie Robinson of lactating lawyers, except uh, there's no evidence it was true. Women have been taking the New Jersey bar since 1895. She's also an academic grifter. She lifted herself as a minority on a legal directory reviewed by deans and hiring committees. The University of Pennsylvania listed her as a minority faculty member. She was touted after her hire at Harvard Law School as the first woman of color. The first woman of color hired by Harvard Law School. She's such a fraud. It is just startling. Um, Such a fraud. And yet it goes on. When we come back... The Washington Post. Did you know there's a movie coming out about the Washington Post? Oh, you haven't heard the best part. It is 39 after the hour. You know, one of the things that I have learned about discussing, well, family issues on the radio and... The, the fact that, and let, we shouldn't dance around this, the fact that raising children in a two-parent heterosexual nuclear household is the most stable, healthy way to raise kids is that some people take it personally when you say this. And they, whether it's chip on their shoulder, guilt, or what have you, they think that you're talking about them. And I have heard now via email from several people who are horrified and offended that I would dare say that a child raised in a two-parent nuclear household uh, is is a child that is typically going to be more successful 
than other kids and have a more stable, happy family life. But you know what? It's a fact. And I'm not going to apologize for a fact. Now, if you are a single parent, I am not condemning you. If your husband left you or you got a divorce and you raised a child alone and your child is successful, God bless you. There is a special place in heaven for you. But let's not ignore or refuse to talk about facts and generalities that are true uh, because it doesn't apply to your specific case. And I'm sorry if you take offense at that. There is nothing I can do to help you if you're going to take offense at facts, at truth. As Andrew Breitbart used to say, truth is truth. It is not mean. And if it doesn't apply to you, it doesn't apply to you. There's no reason to take offense at me telling you the truth uh, when it doesn't apply to you and then sending angry emails or tweets or phone calls to the program. I'm, I'm sorry. I mean, God bless you for, for raising a healthy, productive member of society by yourself. Uh, you had a, a more terrible burden than someone who was raised in a two-parent nuclear household uh, where there were two parents to help out. So God bless you. But let's not avoid then talking about the fact that Every study that has ever been done and your own experience out there in life shows that kids with two parents tend to outperform the rest of the bunch. Tend to does not mean always do. I hope we can move on now. I just, it infuriates me that people have to narrow it down that much. Oh, you're talking about, I don't even know you. Okay. Now we have to talk about the Washington Post. The New York Times, back in the 70s, began publishing the Pentagon Papers. They were leaked out uh, from the Pentagon showing that uh, going all the way back to the Kennedy administration, the federal government had been lying about what we were doing in Vietnam. And that, in fact, by the time we got to Richard Nixon, he had expanded the war in Vietnam more than even Congress knew. The Pentagon Papers largely caused the end of Vietnam, and I think it is also a fact that had the media not gotten involved in an anti-war crusade, we ultimately would have won Vietnam uh, because we were seeing progress. But that's beside the point. The New York Times did this, and the Washington Post followed along behind it. You will be hard-pressed to realize that when Steven Spielberg's movie comes out, it is winning award after award other than the, the army hammer movie about the, the, the gay kid. This movie is winning every award out there and the media is falling all over itself because they view it as an anti Trump movie. And it does not matter how bad this movie may be. It has Meryl Streep who lectured the president from the stage of a comfortable award show. It has Tom Hanks who everybody loves And it has Steven Spielberg, and it's about the press standing up to the president. The only people who are livid about this movie are the people at the New York Times, who actually broke the stories, were threatened with jail time, and nearly went to jail. And the Washington Post came in behind them, did what they had already done, and is now taking all the credit with Steven Spielberg. Why? So, why why this? Because the New York Times is owned by... um, the slush, what is it? The the Schlesinger family, whatever, um, and what is the the New York Times family now? New York Times. This is yes, I, I really do this in real time. It's Pinch. What's his name? Um, owned by yes, the Schultzberger family. 
Yes. Arthur Schultzberg. Burger. A man. A man. And it's always been a man in charge. But the Washington Post, Kay Graham, wound up becoming the publisher and the owner. Kay Graham was the one. She and, and, and um, what's his name? Sally Quinn's husband, who of um, Deep Throat fame, brought down the Nixon White House, Watergate fame. She owned the Washington Post. And because if they ran this and they made it about the New York Times, it would be about a man in New York City, a privileged white man standing up to Richard Nixon. But they didn't want that. They they wanted a movie with a female hero. And so here is um, Kay Graham, played by Meryl Streep, who stood up to Donald Trump from a stage winning an award. She stood up to him. Brave, brave Meryl. And she gets to play Kay Graham, the owner of the Washington Post, who stood with Ben Bradley. Ben Bradley, who stuck it to Richard Nixon, played by Tom Hanks, who everyone loves, in a movie directed, directed by Steven Spielberg, who cares what the New York Times did? This is a woman in charge standing up to Donald Trump. I mean, Richard Nixon. So they had to rewrite history for this movie. Now, this is going to be a good movie. It's it got Meryl Streep. It's got Tom Hanks. It's got Steven's work. It's going to be a good movie. I'm going to go see this movie. But just remember, historically, it was the New York Times that was brave and the Washington Post that followed along behind it. You won't know this from this movie. And this is all of it, every bit of it, has everything to do with Donald Trump and very little to do with the actual story of the Pentagon Papers. Because this is a movie about the press standing up for the First Amendment, sticking it to a president who's corrupt. And they're going to get all the awards because of it. All of them. It is 55 after the hour. The phone number 404-872-0750. But don't call now. Why? Because we're almost out of time and I don't have time to take your phone call. <laughs> don't forget. Uh, I do have one more thing to tell you guys tonight. But don't forget about the National Reciprocity, Concealed Carry Reciprocity. Uh, we will do an action alert on that hopefully tomorrow as it moves through markup in Congress. One thing that is also moving through the regulatory system is uh, a repeal of net neutrality. I, if you go to my Twitter account, uh, twitter.com slash I tweeted out a piece um, from a guy whose opinions I very much respect, even though we often disagree politically. He is a liberal, and he is supportive of the repeal of the net neutrality regulations that the Obama administration did. And one of the points that he makes, for those of you who have heard about this, because the media loves to talk about it, um, there have been, there's been no evidence of abuse of net neutrality. I mean, I support net neutrality. The idea that information should flow freely over the internet, um, I, I think that's a great idea. But I'm not opposed to carriers saying, you know what, we're going to let information flow three, freely 
But if you want to use this particular service, we're going to give it to you and not count that data towards minutes. That's how T-Mobile was able to move into third place as a cell phone company. They provided a real benefit to people. Uh, and they couldn't do that under under these net neutrality regulations. A lot of the experiments they wanted to do to improve data access. Uh, this was a case of, of regulating without any evidence we needed it. So go find that on my social media feed. And tomorrow night, well, I'm sure we'll have more about the CFPB.